I'm Garrison Doctor. And I'm Corinne Doctor. And this is Fishing Stories. And this is actually going to be a two-part story. So you get lots of fun this week, but you do have to wait till next week for uh, part two of this double episode. That's right. And today we talked to Yako Lucas. Uh, some of you may know that name. He's a pretty well-known in, in the fly fishing industry, I would say, for his many adventures and films and guiding and... And personality. Personality. Just a great character. Yeah. You've probably watched some of his films at the film tour. He's behind many of the favorites, but Garrison likes to take it all the way back to Gangsters of the Flats. That's right. It's the number one favorite. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but there's tons of good ones. Absolutely. And in most of those films, Yako shows us moments of the best of fly fishing, like the memorable eats, the action. The good stuff. The huge fish. I mean, yeah. yeah. The creme de la creme. Like, uh, you know, in this episode, Yako talks a little bit about when things maybe don't go as planned. I think he wanted to rebel against what he's most known for. <laughs> right. Of the fish porn and the really amazing captures on film right and we do talk about some of that but we also talk about some adventures where like i said things go wrong a bit yes but we do want everyone to know that fly fishing is still safe right it's fine don't be discouraged everything's fine (laughs) um and we hope that you enjoy this part one of two with yako yako hey hi how are you good good to have you on the line thanks for taking the time for sure, for sure. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's actually, selfishly, it's really fun to have you on um, this season because I haven't even told you this yet, but your episode with April Vokey on her podcast was yeah. one of the reasons, it was like one of the inspirations for me wanting to do this because you started telling this killer story about chasing a tiger shark off of a GT. Oh, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> I want to hear that whole story. Yeah, like, wait a minute. Podcast just about fishing stories could be kind of fun. Yeah, and, and you know, I think the thing that makes us pretty cool is, is Other- we kind of get caught up in this whole thing that we kind of spoiled in a situation. I always tell guys, I'm, I've been so fortunate and spoiled to all the different places I've been at that some of the stories that might not seem, it seems like a, like a, like, like we said before, like elephants and stuff like that seem like the norm, but it is definitely the exact opposite. Right. So it's always nice to yeah. actually reminisce on some of these things that actually happened. And just sometimes it's for me, even just thinking about it. Okay. That's, uh, that's, that's damn awesome. Yeah. yeah I love it. Well, give the people out there just a quick background, who you are, where you are, set the stage here. Yeah, I mean, born and raised in South Africa, um, grew up there, studied there, learned to fish from my dad and my granddad, and uh, and basically, my, like I said, my fondest memories and all my memories are always revolved around the water and spent most of the free time I had away from books or other sports and the water fishing, um, and um, it kind of just grew up along again just trying to make a long story short i kind of by pure luck met met a guy called keith rose which you guys know uh from alphonse fishing company yeah. and uh 
I saw him after his guiding season in Russia. He was completely tatty. He was like, you could see this guy just completed a season in Russia. You could <laughs> say that from a mile away. And we kind of just got to talking and uh, he explained to me that he's doing guiding for a living. I couldn't believe it. Um, he explained to me a few things he did. I followed completely in his footsteps, finished my degree, worked at a fly shop called Farlow's and uh, phoned him up, back up and said, look, I've done basically everything you told me to. This is a year later. Do you have a job for me? Two weeks later, I was in the Cosmolito guiding people into the most ridiculous numbers of, of GTs that you can imagine. So it's, it's a right time, right place thing. But also, I think my, my uh, OCD personality make, made all that stuff happen. Yeah, and putting in the work. I mean, putting in that time with a fly shop, getting your foot in the door that way is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's always like I've always tried to be one step ahead of myself. I, I reached a specific goal and I set myself another goal. Like I, like I said, I was in that fly shop already telling everybody I was going to be a fishing guide and just really mingled with all the industry folks. And it was really nice. And, and, and for the most part, you guys know, like, I mean, people in, in the fly fishing industry for the most part are just so nice. I mean, you just get to know people that are so like-minded and love fishing and it's an instant connection. Right. Yeah. I mean, I always like to, on these podcasts, kind of say, I remember the first time we met. And with you, it was all electronic, like via email for like six months, maybe. Yeah. Most of the emails were auto replies, like, I'm off the grid. And we're like, of course you're off the <laughs> yeah, grid. Yeah, I mean, every time we just got a chuck, we're like, oh, yeah, perfect. Looks like Yago's out doing something again. Okay. <laughs> but we were making those hats with you and RA wow. for Off the Grid Studios which we still see in films, which is super exciting. Oh, yeah. And then we finally got to meet at IFTV in Florida. That was now, of course, a couple of years ago. But it's one of those really cool, like, full circle. We've watched your films before we were even a company. And then we're making these hats. We see the hats. And then we finally actually get to, like, shake hands and give a hug. It's pretty fun. Yeah, and, and that's the beautiful thing about this whole connection thing is, and, and the, the, the thing I like the most about social media and that communication is once you meet in person, it's kind of like you already know each other. Um, I think I've actually worn that hat. That, that hat, actually, I just have one, and I'm like, I'm, I'm in between if I should wear it out. I've, I've, it was like a fancy hat at one stage. To be honest, <laughs> I'm too nervous about wearing it, like doing crazy stuff. So it's going into like the, I've got certain hats that's going into like the, the, the memory banks. I'm still trying to work on my man cave. So that's definitely going up on the, on the shelves. <laughs> I love Perfect. it. I mean, you're in Texas now. Yes. Damn, yeah. So uh, things progressed pretty fast in the last couple of years where um, initially actually funnily enough, how all these things came up. I also, again, when I was guiding, I said to everybody that I'd love to get like a, like I love the exotic stuff and the crazy stuff, but spending nine times a month, uh, nine times, uh, uh, nine months a year away from, my wife and that was kind of a little bit tough uh, you know it's uh, everybody says yo no there your your better half is understanding and that stuff and they might be but i don't think it's very fair to kind of just assume that they should always just be okay with it i mean that's it's an important thing to spend some time together and we really appreciate each other's time together but um like that wasn't really feasible for the rest of my life and i wanted to always have a skiff and guide somewhere where i can guide go back home guide go back home and i mean it just how all it worked out we managed to get it uh, um, i managed to start doing a consulting work for thomas and thomas fly rod in the u.s then we got our green cards and then we moved to Austin, Texas, thanks to a bunch of guys from Yeti that showed us a fantastic time. I was like, that's exactly where we want to live. Yeah. Bought a home here. I got a boat, 
spoke to JT Van Zandt and all those guys and, and now I'm guiding on the Texas coast and we've we've been in Austin almost three and a half years now and it's awesome. It's awesome. I love, again, like a lot of people would go like, oh man, you've been guiding those shells and these crazy places and they are amazing but I really appreciate this fishery. It is awesome. I mean, I've sent you some photos of some of the stuff that I've been up to that I kind of keeping a little bit on the low down but it is, it is uh, it's phenomenal. It's really, it's joined a lot. We'll circle back on that later. Yeah, I want to hear more about that. <laughs> Let's not forget that you want to come home to your cute dogs too. Oh yeah, yeah. National, national international doggy day today. They are. They, I mean, they always spoiled. Let's be honest. When that's, that's right. important to know. That's important to know. Yeah. Good. We're big dog people ourselves. We are. Well, good. I know you had a story or two in mind, so kind of hand it over to you here to let it rip. Yeah, I mean, so. As you know, I mean, I've based most of my career and built most of my career around the Seychelles and guiding for GTs and, and all that, all the craziness that happens in the Indian Ocean. Um, and it is a phenomenal place. And we are spoiled with the variety of fish and just the, the numbers of fish every single day. Um, but, you know, there's, there's, like we've spoken before, everybody in social media sees all these amazing things play out and it looks like amazing. And how do you do that? And how can I do that? But then there's all the stuff in the background, which, I mean, even working at a lodge, even working at all these places, I can promise you as a client fishing at a place, there is a ton of stuff going on in the background that no one ends up knowing about, probably better so too. Um, and and one of the things is uh, when we were in the Seychelles in 2009, quite a few seasons down already, everything was going very, very fantastic. We, were, we had actually at that stage three boats. Um, we had... Uh, two at Cosmo, one at Providence guiding all at the same time. So we had a massive guide group and we were guiding. Everything was going fine. We did hear these slight rumors that there were pirates and stuff in the Seychelles, but obviously everybody assumed it's Captain Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean. Is all right. Right. So um, it, nobody took it very serious or serious enough. Um, and it was, I think it was the first half of the 2009 season I mean, it's, it's a while back now, but it's around that time. Uh, it was actually towards the end of our season where we had a fantastic week. We had a great group of American clients uh, with us. By the way, American clients are the best. Uh, we had a great group of American clients with us. And uh, fishing, I thought, looking at, I mean, a lot of this, the, the literature and stuff and videos that's been put out said it was a pretty, like, ominous week. And there was kind of all these weird vibes. Personally, maybe I was in my own world, but we crushed the fish. I had a bunch of GTs. Uh, we had one of the most phenomenal milk fishing sessions where we, in, I mean, like a two hours time, we hooked like 15. We had three triple ups, all three of my guests onto milkfish. You could literally hear the milkfish feeding from like, honestly, like a, like a couple hundred yards away. You could hear just, just going nuts. And so it was great. We, we kind of came back as we do normal week. We, we, what we would do is we would take the boat from Cosmolito to Assumption Island and then we take a chartered plane back to the main island in Mahe. We did exactly the same. We had half a day's fishing with a client, so we were fishing around. We actually had a National Geographic boat close to us, which was 10 times the bigger than ours. The funny thing is, is like when we came around the corner, the one uh, after we were done and we kind of going to get ready to take the clients back and pack up and go, I looked at the two boats next to each other and I said to all the guys there, I was like, why would pirates want to take our little boat, which we called the Animal's Bum, which was smelling funny, super exploratory boat, but it worked, and not take the, the Nat Geo boat. And we kind of laughed about it, um, ended up getting the clients off the boat. We got on the chartered plane. 
we actually flew off. We didn't know anything. We landed in Mai. As soon as we landed in Mai, we got the news that the boat was taken. As soon as we got off, they, the, the pirates took the boat, the Indian Ocean Explorer that we were on. Unfortunately, the crew was still there. Um, but fortunate for us, we were, on the, we were not on there. But if you read, there's a book called 88 Days. The pirates were actually actively trying to get us. Maybe they get info via some mafia or something, but they knew that we were there. I don't know if they knew who the people were, but it was high players. So they were looking for ransom. They wanted the, wanted our guests. And, um, and basically they took the boat back to the Somalia Bay. They kept the crew there and I mean, they harassed and I mean, treated the crew horribly for 88 days. I mean, they were torturing them. They were giving them just enough food to stay alive. I mean, there's horror stories that I've heard after that. The guys, uh, eventually, they got half the ransom, like a super, it was this crazy, by the sounds of it, I mean, we weren't there, but it was just like this perfect drop where they had to arrange the money. It was like $500,000 or something. They did the drop. They let the crew go free on a dinghy, and then they set the boat on fire and sank it. Um, but this is all after 88 days, and I mean, the, the, it feels so bad because you, after a bunch of seasons, you get so close to the crew because you're relying on them to make everything run smooth for you that like your boats, uh, they would take us at that stage. We wouldn't have our own boats. So they would take us around, drop us off. Captain Francis and uh, Patrick was one of the guys that I probably learned everything I know about Cosmolito. Like the guy used to be a sea cucumber diver. They used to dive sea cucumbers around there. And the stuff that he knew about that was amazing. And, and then, you know, those people so close and, Luckily, I mean, we can all just think that they managed to all get back home and they are all alive. But I think for 88 days to go through, apparently they even had guns held against their head every single day asking, what do you know, wanting intel, wanting all sorts of info. Um, but Francis, the captain, held his cool. He, he kind of got everything sort of still to the point where they can just go free. So, and I think he actually managed to get people from other boats free too, which is, he's like this local Seychelles hero. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's in saying all of that, it's a very dramatic story and it could have been horribly wrong where we could have still been on there and it could have been, it could have worked out terrible for us. Um, but it just kind of shows you how easy things can happen in these places. And we always joke about it that nobody's been bitten by a barracuda or nobody's been, been stung by a cone shell or stuff like that. But um, that was definitely a real situation. But uh, so yeah. did that instigate some uh, security changes in the Alphonse. Well, it was all shut down for a while, wasn't it? Yeah, it was shut down for, for actually a much shorter time than I thought it would be because I think it was literally the, the following season. We were back in on Farquhar Island. The reason why we started working again on Farquhar Island is just because there's some maritime law that pro protects us against pirates being able to take us on land. So we were just working on a land-based operation there and, and it was fantastic, but it definitely shut down a lot of places like Providence and Cosmolito down for quite some time. Um, and, but now, you know, the U.S. sent three, diff three drones there fully loaded to completely destroy stuff in its way. And they managed to get this whole situation kind of toned down. And now it's just kind of a thing of the past. We don't even think about it. We do carry two armed security guards with us when we, do the liverboards but for the most part now it's all land-based cosmos land-based right looking at doing providence land-based um but that definitely seems to be resolved but i mean jesus looking at the way the world's going now i wouldn't be surprised if they start popping up again but the clients will always be safe i don't want to like put everybody off from going to the seychelles it's the yeah, right. yeah i didn't want to establish 
this is a safe destination if everybody yeah. <laughs> so i mean it's it's all these places i mean it's like fishing places in africa and doing some exotic trips for the most part i think again people read the literature and they get the information on the trip and it is amazing locations for the most part those places are all amazing but you've got to always be prepared for a sense of something going wrong, delayed flights, luggage lost, all the, I mean, it's a constant, you know, like when you go to Bolivia, when you go to all these places there, in the fact that you go there and make a perfectly successful trip and come back is usually like, I mean, that's crazy. It doesn't always happen like that. Oh, for sure. Well, our last time in Bolivia, I got just like some jungle cold, you know, cause we're coming from dry Colorado to humid Bolivia. And I got better within like a day or two. It was just like quick through the system. We came back, like, that was the best trip ever, blah, 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 blah. And everyone's like, nothing went wrong. I was like, oh, I was sick for a day, but no, oh, it's great. Overall, it was. It's Ruby and Dorado and it's all over. That's the basement. Oh, yeah, there is no better cure than yeah. that. I mean, all of these places that we go, there's a certain level of adventure. And then we forget that we take risks every day. So why not? be trying to catch a gt with yeah a i mean risk. that's the other thing is like uh, any highway in the united states I, if you do the math there's a lot of risk involved there right and yeah you're going on these small planes and logistics but also and considering where you are the risks aren't that bad most of the time you know yeah i mean it's always like i i once you're on location more often than not like when we went to bolivia the first time with rodrigo marcelo it was myself and ra um, and that was when we did the jungle angler and that was kind of like a, a wake up call. Once you're in the jungle, we were like in, expecting all these bugs to kill us, mosquitoes and all these crazy things. But funnily enough, when we, when we got into the jungle, there was almost nothing that bothered us. I mean, there's the sand flies, but you are kind of prepared for it. You know what to expect in that sense. But yeah. other than that, it felt pretty good. I mean, yeah. I was all sorts of, you, you think in your mind, all sorts of crazy spiders and snakes and stuff, right. but. So I kind of, yeah, it's nah. not bad. The only thing that, that did was the funniest, funniest story ever is when Ara and I, I mean, so novice on the jungle, we arrived there the first time, short sleeve, short stuff. And they, and Rodrigo Marcelo said like, once we land in the village, it's like, whatever you do, don't get stung by anything right here. And we're like getting bitten to, I mean, like red dots on us and all sorts of crazy stuff in the village which is where you can pick up that disease or whatever from the flies. And once you're out of it, you're cool. It's not, it's not a, no problem, but <laughs> felt like such a, yeah, I don't know. Uh, felt really like a city kid when, yeah. when we arrived there the first time. Right. Classic well, Corinne, Corinne studied abroad in Chile during college and we were together and I went and met her down there and we traveled up and went to Peru and a bunch of different places, but we went down to Manu in Amazonian Peru and we weren't fishing at the time we were just exploring and looking at the birds and whatever but once again like I'm like I'm not wearing pants you know it's 85 degrees and humid what are you insane I'm wearing shorts I'm wearing like lightweight jungle pants like. you know, and you're in the little you know typical <laughs> motorized dugout canoe you know in the yeah. Amazonian trip down there and we stopped at this little village and there were just hundreds of these tiny little gnats in my leg hair and i was like corinne i think these things are biting me she's like don't like, need no to matter. way those aren't <laughs> biting you and i had i mean we counted them 100 bites per leg 
Oh, those ones that leave the like the little blood dot oh, on you. Those yeah. are the sand, the sand flies. Sand flies. Sand flies. Yeah. They stick. That itch sticks around for a while. I mean, that's all they just feel. Once you start like scratching it open because you want to get the blood out, you're like, oh yeah. Yeah, it's not good. Well, I have to say, I was just going to add on Bolivia that when we did our Bolivia trip, I knew that we were going to have a great trip because we were crossing paths with you. All I was like, listen, yeah. Corinne, if we're brushing shoulders with where and when he's out there, <laughs> I think we're doing pretty good. We're going to be okay. Yeah, we, we got to pass the baton in the hotel. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And it, did, and it, it ended up really well. Like, yeah, it, it's, it's a magical place. I, it's funny, like with Bolivia and stuff, when I talk to clients about it and going fishing there, like for some reason... I don't know, guys still, I had this conversation with several people in this last year about doing this trip to Bolivia. And for some reason, they're always talking about like, we're scared to go because the river's going to blow out. But now what I try and explain to, explain to them, um, again, not, I mean, this is, Bolivia is one of my top five places in the world, is that a blown out river is the same as getting bad weather in Cosmolito. That stuff is nothing you can predict. You can, the, uh, the guy from Untamed and the guy from Angling Frontiers, they do those seasons for a specific reason. They're not trying to do a season where you get a blown out river. Right. And it can happen. It can, it can like you said, like it, it can rain miles up river and suddenly it's blown out and nothing's happened on your side. There's been no rain, no nothing. And it's just part of those things. But it's still, I mean, being in the jungle, hearing the, the, the parrots and all that stuff. I mean, it's hard to beat. That, that is one of the coolest trips on the planet, for sure. Also, if, that, if you're there as that river blows out, you're probably going to get some of the best fishing you're going to have. As yeah. that river blows out, yeah. those fish are going to be going bananas. It'd be a, a short window. but We had that day. We had that sure. day. And like as that river came up, oh, my gosh, did they get on the feed. Yeah. No, exactly. You, I mean, it's like you said, it's amazing how quickly those clear out too. Like, I mean, it, like you said, it gets, it gets fishable really quickly. The water temperature drops a little bit, maybe it like moves those fish. But if you look at a Dorado, that thing needs to feed. It's not going to like stop. I mean, it's like me with cookies and chocolate. I'm not going to suddenly, conditions <laughs> are not right. I got to eat that stuff. Right. I don't know what their metabolism like, but I mean, you know, the water's 80 degrees that metabolism has to be cranking. Like they have to be eating all the time. No, exactly. Exactly. It's uh, yeah. It's the same as Jack's and GT's and stuff. It seems like, I mean, basically that is all they're doing day in, day out. It's just getting ready to eat something and keeping the, um, keeping the the metabolism just in check. Yeah. Absolutely. Just a quick pause to talk to all my fellow whiskey drinkers out there. If you're a fan of the brown and not just the trout, I've got to introduce you to our friends at Lock & Co. They've spent more than a decade perfecting their Aspen-aged rye whiskey, and I'll tell you, it was worth the wait. Rye whiskey usually isn't for the faint of heart, but I have to say that this is hands down the smoothest rye I've ever tasted. We love it after a long day on the water or, you know, that random Wednesday night. Also of note, when these guys aren't making whiskey, they're out on the river with the rest of us. So if you want to support another Colorado business and enjoy some fine whiskey, you will not be disappointed with Lock & Co. You can find them at most liquor stores on the Front Range of Colorado, or you can check their website, lockandcodistilling.com. That's Well, speaking of salt water, judging by your face, you have got a little sun recently. (laughs) You're just freshly back from some salt water. Tell us about that. I've only literally noticed the raccoon tan now, looking on the Zoom (laughs) It's pretty nice. good. It's, it's coming in pretty strong. It's I good. wear it 
proudly. Um, <laughs> this, is, this has been like my life for the last 15 years with a raccoon tan. But uh, yeah, I mean, just got back from a trip to Mexico. And again, like we said before, so many things go wrong. Most of, like a lot of the times on trips. The funny thing is, is this one happened pretty, pretty uh, quickly, just getting the trip together. Um, I was lucky enough. I was really lucky to get invited by a client of mine that I fish with in Texas a lot, a guy called Todd, uh, Todd, Todd Remers. And uh, he invited, he's like, do you want to go permit fishing with me? Um, going with, with uh, Christian Cole and the guys from Tailwaters. And um, I immediately like, yes, okay, go. I'm going immediately. Um, and, uh, and, but this is like only a couple of weeks before we actually went on the trip. Um, you know, there's still so many un- unstable stuff and not sure how the traveling and all that kind of stuff worked out, but um, everything like that, all that stuff kind of worked out and we managed to go. I said to Todd when he told me the week, I quickly immediately, like we always do, like go and check the tides, moon phases and all that stuff. I said to him, if this weather holds with the little pressure this place has, it's going to be nuts. And uh, and yeah, like I said, arrived there. Um, we had a little bit of an extended trip. We came in a little bit earlier. Um, we got dropped off and got ferried with the boats and fished for like half a day to start off the trip on our way to the lodge to, uh, to the Palometa club. The craziest thing I've, I've got a Anak permit and a blocky permit. Those two species I've ticked off the list and I've, I've hooked one Atlantic permit in Cuba, which roasted me and broke my line, <laughs> um, which like haunted my dreams for the longest time. And so I've really wanted it very badly for a long time. And, we know permit is the Holy grail. And it took us basically one hour from the point we jumped on the boat, went down. Um, my client Todd, he got a bonefish, um, uh, pretty happy having lunch. I was on the next spot on the bow and the guy just literally went, there's a group of permit, make a cast and eat and land your, my first permit before we even get to the lodge. Um, so silly. And that was kind of, that just set the tone for the, for the week, the following day, the day after that, um, we went out again and we found good numbers of permit to the point where it almost felt like a commercial fishing situation. The guides wanted to try and repeat something with a quad where two clients each hold two permit. We got this group. We had, both hooked up to permit immediately. We like got the fish out of the group. Uh, the guy grabbed the tail on each fish, held it in the water. He said, you guys go again, go in again, both hooked up again. And we're like, okay, hands are full. Let's, uh, let's take this photo. And we, and we actually, the second day we landed 12 permit for the day. So, I mean, he just kept on going and going. I mean, we had two days of it where, we missed opportunities or broke some line on fish, but otherwise we got permit every single day and it was just phenomenal. I mean, it was just, you know, it's, it's hard. Everybody says is the pressure that's now less there and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I still, we, there was still a few tourist boats around. There was definitely not the amount of traffic that they used to. So, so this whole scenario kind of gave us, gave me a good idea on how quickly a fishery and a place can, can kind of just, just re-energize itself if it just gets left alone a little bit. And I mean, it, it yeah, it, I don't think personally I'll see permit fishing like that ever in my life. I'm, we ended with 52 permit and three grand slams for the week, which is, I mean, that's, that's crazy numbers in any, in any fish, any species. Yeah. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, We've both <clears throat> failed at any attempt of even seeing a permit. Every time we've, the only time we've attempted is going to the Keys. And, and we weren't targeting permit. We have had a, I had actually 
last November, I had two like pretty good sized permit that I saw with enough time to make it ta- cast and one turned and gave a sniff. And that's as close, that's it. That's as, close <laughs> as I've come. That was my big, that was my big permit moment. Just yeah. one little tiny sniff. He kind of looked at it for a second and was like, no way. You're from Colorado. Get out of here with that. And that but that's still what, that's more permit, re, re, that's a realistic permit situation. That's normal. Right. But like in saying all of that with how crazy the permit fishing was, the two biggest permit that I ended up getting, um, I'm pretty proud of how I fished for those fish because we had uh, both those fish kind of refused the flies we had on, refused, refused. Eventually, with, in both scenarios, we changed the leader setup to an 18-foot straight-up 12-pound leader and five different fly changes. And it ended up, both fish ended up eating an Avalon shrimp, which is like, I'm in between those because I have a lot of, had few refusals on it before. And I was like in between, but these two fish just engulfed it. But in the scenario, I was very happy on how I caught them because, I, I mean, those 18-foot leaders back casting into a wind coming straight at you was... Yeah, no. but, uh, was not easy, but it uh, got a little bit lucky. <laughs> yeah, well, it I all would, takes a little luck, but I think uh, more skill. Some skill involved there. <laughs> we'll give you a little. <laughs> Just a little. That's yeah. awesome. How big were the bigger ones? Um, I think we, like the biggest ones that we got were sort of between like the 18 and 20 pound range. I don't think we got anything up to 25, 30, but there was a few um a few fish sort of in the 20 pound range that's i mean really really nice permit we we obviously as with every trip we found some groups of permit that were in the i would say 25 to 35 pound range those things just look different they just different the head looks kind of just they just look different um didn't really have flies in front of them uh, enough. I, I always think like i mean permit can definitely like i said in your scenario the permit saw the fly you kind of sniffed it and it wasn't what he tasted, but I think a lot what he wanted. But I think in a lot of occasions, it it I don't think we just don't lay the fish in, the fly in front of the fish in the correct. Like I mean, for him to really see it. Right. Um, I, I remember my my really honestly first shot at permit was one of the greatest shot I've ever had. Four fish tailing on a stingray, and you can like this is GTS. It's guaranteed to score, and threw in there several times. None of them ate it, but I always had the feeling like I needed a heavier fly. I just wasn't in the zone. I just wasn't in the zone. And eventually they swam off. Oh no, the pole got stuck in the ground and the guy pulled it out and kind of spooked the fish away. But I think, I think in a lot of scenarios, we just don't probably show the fish enough, the fly in the right manner. Um, mm. But uh, but again, I mean, it's it's hard. They still, they, still, they, they still do funny things. I mean... I mean, sometimes... Uh, kind of dumb fish but you're right that like a lot of the time especially for us like we are such novice saltwater anglers we live in colorado we trout fish that's what we're good at and we've gotten lucky on saltwater well if you couldn't tell we were having a little too much fun chatting with yako and we ended up telling even more stories so be sure to tune in next week where we continue talking saltwater with Yako and all things texas fishing where he is located now fishing stories is brought to you by rep your water and lock and co whiskey if you have a fishing story of your own or if you just have a question or comment shoot us an email at tell us a fishing story at gmail.com we'll talk to you next week